Malunale, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Ko hoku ingoa, ko koroi Hawkins. Coming up... The government has uh, asked for uh, close to 200 uh, million, but uh, I don't think uh, this could be mobilized. Tonga still in need of financial support for rebuild after volcano and tsunami disaster. Also... I was hoping for definitely one more and possibly two more. We talk about the recent PNG elections and women in politics with veteran PNG politician Dame Carol Kidu and Tokelau leaders condemn anti-vax narrative around a family placed under Tunoa for refusing the jab. Your criticism of our leaders, our people and our communities to push forward your political agenda is totally unacceptable by Tokelau. The head of the United Nations Development Programme in the Pacific says the Kingdom of Tonga is still in need of funds to help its citizens rebuild and recover from the devastation wrought by the eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai volcanic eruption and tsunami on the 15th of January this year. The programme's Pacific resident representative, Livan Boadze, says according to the figures he has seen so far, the Tonga government has only received a small fraction of the close to 200 million it appealed to international donors for after the twin disaster. He joins me now. Malolele, Levan, first of all, tell us how is the recovery going at the moment in Tonga from the UNDP's perspective? So I think uh, in order to answer this question, I think we have to put... Uh Uh, everything in uh, some uh, sort of context uh, because that's not the only disaster that happened over the last uh, couple of years, a few years. So let's uh, just recall ourselves that in 2020, along with the COVID-19, which is also kind of a disaster, unheard of and unprecedented, but it's still a disaster. We also, at the same time, concomitantly, we had uh, uh, the, the tropical cyclone Harold, which affected uh, Tonga along with other Pacific regions. And we haven't really managed to recover from any of that, of those disasters uh, when the, the volcanic uh, uh, disaster hit. And in some ways, we are recovering from all the, all the, the all those disasters all at the same time. And, I think uh, to say that recovery is underway, perhaps this is an accurate description of what is happening, although it's still a long way uh, to go before the the country uh, recovers uh, from from all of it. And here we are talking about uh, you know the damage that uh, volcanic eruption and uh, subsequent uh, tsunami inflicted on the economy. Uh, fortunately, there were not many death, but, you know, we're talking about significant destruction uh, of, uh, you know, the housing, the infrastructure, the agricultural crops, economy, you know, quite a few uh, industrial uh, assets have uh, perished uh, in all all this. And combined it's all with uh, the COVID uh, crisis, I think we are talking about significant uh, damage uh, to recover from and I guess the uh, response is it's underway, but we still have uh, some way to go. Um, so so what, what are some of the ongoing challenges now with the recovery in Tonga? Uh, uh, and we've established that it's it's recovery on top of recovery, but for, for the most recent uh, uh, to, uh, volcanic eruption and tsunami, what, what, 
what are some of the ongoing challenges to that recovery? Yes, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, as it, it, this has been a very unusual disaster, right? Uh, which is actually by standard of Pacific. Uh, is, I don't, I'm not sure if it has happened ever. So we had a volcanic eruption, which was very close by to the main island of uh, Tonga Tapu, that is Tonga, where 70% of the population or more leave, uh, which is only seven kilometers away, which was followed by children. So imagine the, the sort of damage uh, that we are talking about. And, uh, you know, there was uh, quite a few manifestations of damage, uh, that the infrastructure, inundation, uh, which, you know, sort of damaged infrastructure, then agricultural lanes, uh, and you had uh, this uh, volcano this, this spread over the country, which basically damages uh, also everything, uh, pretty much everything, the agriculture. Then we had uh, the, the also challenges with uh, drinking water. Uh, and then we had a couple of islands that have been dramatically affected, requiring the resettlement of the, the population from one place to another and some Parts of uh, some some of the islands may not even be inhabitable anytime soon. And then overall, if you just put uh, together the, the damages, the government has estimated this to be around 90 million US dollars, which represents about 20 percent of the overall uh, gross domestic product. And it is against the, the backdrop that the country's economy has been shrinking. Starting uh, from 2020, when the COVID has started, in 2021, the reduction in reduction uh, in the economy, and in 2022, we're in now, so we're expecting to base to be reduced by another two percent. And uh, in sort of our economic recovery, we can talk about although economic recovery started, but uh, this will only be reflected in 2023, marginally by IMF estimates, we perhaps two percent growth. And in 2024, we might expect a better recovery in terms of the economy. So without those uh, uh, you know, fundamentals uh, getting right, I think it would be really hard for us to even talk about you know, recovering uh, from where we were uh, pre-pandemic, uh, let alone you know, finding resources to, to pay for the damage uh, that uh, that. It, I just uh, mentioned so many years the economy need to generate that wealth in order to be able to cover uh, the loss. And against this background, uh, what we see so far, and if uh, the figures uh, can be uh, reliable, so we believe that only $11 million have been provided uh, through international uh, support. That is at least uh, the figures that I have, out of which only $7 million Seven and a half million was devoted to humanitarian needs, which was almost immediate, uh, uh, almost immediate uh, needs. Uh, and then another three, four million dollars are being earmarked for recovery efforts. So, as you can see, uh, and it is against the, the background that the government has uh, asked for uh, close to 200 million. Dollar through its appeal, but uh, I don't think uh, this is, could be mobilized. 142 women contested the Papua New Guinea election this year with only two winning seats. 
Dame Carol Kidu, a former cabinet minister who sat in parliament for three five-year terms, spent considerable time coaching women candidates, preparing them for the poll. The two that were victorious, Kesi Sawang in the Rai Coast Open and Rufina Pita in the central regional seat, were part of her eight-women team. Dame Carol told Don Wiseman she was hoping more would have succeeded. I was hoping for definitely one more and possibly two more. One more, definite one, well, it was stolen from her. I'm quite sure of that by buying of her votes at the last moment. And the interesting thing is that when people kind of swap and take money, they then feel an obligation to put their vote on that way. So I, she was the one that I thought was certain to win. Actually, she's a former member, Delilah Gorey, and I was out with her several times. And the obvious support for her was, it was really, really clear. I couldn't believe it. And she started to lead in the beginning in the incumbent's base area. Better be careful what I say, but people were called in and there's evidence that a large amount of money was given out two days before the campaign time ended. I came in the after this event and um, one of the candidate's sister said to me they saw some of their supporters on the trucks following around the prime minister the pangu trucks so i did think she was a definite i thought rufina honorable rufina and honorable casey who have won were very strong possibilities and i had two others that i thought had a reasonable chance out of the eight that i worked with but the interesting thing don was that there were several women who were not in the team that i worked with because they did not stand in 2017 i worked with people who had stood in 2017 2017 and done well. There were some that came up were very strong. They're in the top five. And again, a couple of them, I believe, should have won. At least one, I'm convinced she should have won. But there was a lot of compromise in the counting room. And she's had people come and actually tell her straight. So it was a very, very difficult election. Very difficult. To have two there, it's it's great. And there's going to be a by-election in North Bougainville. And although the project I worked on is finished, I am going to make a point of going over and working with the women who are going to stand in the by-election. And there is a possibility we can get a third one. This is a by-election because the member who won died during the campaign. Yeah, during the counting, actually, I think. Um, Yeah, but... His daughter is going to be Standy, a very well-qualified woman who actually worked and helped him. And there are a couple of other women standing, and they've already decided that they will work together. And I'm going to go over and work with them and do some workshops with them and um, do the damnedest we can to try to get another woman in in that by-election. As we say, 142 women, and we've often talked about the impediments to women getting into Parliament and PNG mm. and the opposition from men, the opposition from other women, the lack mm. of money, they remain yeah. the impediments. They're worse than when I stood. They're actually much worse than when I stood, Don. It's intensified. It has been described by some women, a resurgence of patriarchy, but patriarchy in a new form, which is denying the power that women had traditionally, not patriarchy in its pure traditional sense, where, we, where women did have a say. And if you recall, in the first election after independence, three women won. And this intensifying of the attitudes of patriarchy has increased over recent years. It started in my last term, my last campaign, and since then it's got much worse. It's become normalised. And also the elections being conducted like tribal warfare has become normalised in some areas and has spread to urban areas as well. Dan Carroll, what do you think is driving this? I think greed for power and money and the realisation of what you can gain by going into politics. And I, I don't want people to think that that's the only thing. I mean, many, many people stand for the right reasons. 
but they're also many maybe they stand for the right reasons but they actually use the wrong mechanisms to try to get there and abuse the system and as you say you've seen many of these png elections over the last 30 years a lot of people have said this is the worst ever it was, was that your worse, assessment? far worse Don. oh yeah far worse we were all horrified in general 2017 was worse and this one was far worse what do you think needs to happen well i mean government of the day must take responsibility they have to really go through the whole process. They have to get roles in place. It was there was funding allocated, but the roles didn't get into place. And people who had been on the role before had disappeared. And the updates were, were not done properly in many areas. Some candidates who had been on the role in other elections had disappeared from the role. Some strong candidates, one woman, very strong candidate, had disappeared from the role. Her name wasn't there. She couldn't vote for herself. It was just, I will say, not only were voters bribed, but Pauline officials were bribed. I can say that quite honestly and not be ashamed to say it, because that is the fact. Pauline officials, counting officials, some of them were also bribed, not just the, the voters. And so yeah. we have a lot of cleaning up to do. Well, there are some calls for the whole system to change. Yeah, yeah. There needs to be a concerted effort to relook at the whole system. And perhaps by changing the whole system, I can introduce something that will bring women in without the concept of reserve seats like the word reserve seat I, i've said to women stop using it it's a dead horse but you know if they reviewed the whole system it could be incorporated into a review for example if they introduced a senate type situation as well as the the house of politicians who are now project deliverers and let's get a senate i mean people have talked a bit about this a senate with uh, who will focus on parliamentary work that could be made 50 50 or something but i mean i just don't know if there'll be the will to do that type of thing these things have been discussed what is needed definitely is massive community awareness from 2023 until 2027 and before 2024, which are the local level government elections. The limited community awareness that I facilitated, it did have impact and I know it had impact. And the candidates I helped said it made a huge difference to have that awareness being done out in the community about what is politics about, what is national politics about, why is it important to have women in politics and things like that. It did have impact if it could be blanket the whole country I, I think we could get more women in. Leaders in Tokelau have condemned the anti-vax narrative of a family placed under Tunor for refusing the jab. The unvaccinated family have been under Tunor, which roughly translates to house arrest on Nukunonu in Tokelau for just over one year and have been slapped with even tougher restrictions. Vaccinations are mandatory in Tokelau and the local council and village elders are not having a bar of the spread of misinformation by the family online. Mahalino Patelisio, his wife and two adult children's internet, has been restricted for one month in an effort to dampen tension. Lydia Lewis has the latest. The General Manager National of the Office of the Ongoing Government of Tokelau, Aukusitino Vitale has issued a frank message to an anti-vax group that he says has been spreading false information about the situation. I watched uh, with disgrace your lies during the number of interviews you have had with uh, small families uh, on Nukunonu and Atafu. Taking the words of a few on Tokelau to make believe and promote your propaganda and lack of understanding of our way of life and history as a people. 
The issue is much deeper than that. Mr Vitale says his vibrant, rich culture is under attack. This is what he said in his latest address. Do not pretend you know our kahinomanga because clearly you have no understanding of the depth of our small community's way of life. Tokelau holds you account for all the lies and negatives you have caused our society and people. A strong objection following comments on social media that he says tarnishes their culture. Mr Vitale went on to read a letter addressed to the Taupulanga, or village elders, on May 4, 2022, from Ross Ardern, the former administrator of Tokelau. I am of the firm opinion that Tūnoa imposed on the unvaccinated adults has run its course. Respectfully, as previously communicated, it is the view of both the administrator and New Zealand that the penalty of Tūnoa that you have imposed should have an immediate end to it and should never, under any circumstances, apply to children. I am concerned that the arbitrary detention of children and adults for refusing to be vaccinated, as is their right to do so, will damage the international reputation of both Tokelau and New Zealand. Those are the words of Ross Ardern, who is no longer the administrator of Tokelau, Don Higgins is. We reached out to him through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade in New Zealand and they declined an interview. Following the first in-person general whanau this year, I received a written response to my questions from an NFAT spokesperson. I asked, how complex is this issue given the cultural aspects? Their response, the issue is a complex one balancing the rights and responsibilities of individuals and communities. New Zealand and Tokelau have a commitment to try to find a resolution that complies with Tokelau and New Zealand's international obligation while respecting the traditional governance structures that are integral to community life in Tokelau. Tino Vitale wants to be clear. Tokelau officials are not puppets of Jacinda Ardern. Mr Vitale says the health of residents is at the forefront of any decisions made by village elders, and for good reason. Tokelau's three Taupulengas decided on what they know is best to protect their communities. Noting, the three villages of Tokelau are small, densely populated and isolated. They have limited health services, persons who need specialist care, are evacuated to Samoa or New Zealand. Against this background, Tokelau decided that vaccination was the best way to protect its community from the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Malapito, that brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Malo.